Today is Thursday, February 29th, 2024, and you're listening to the Ask a Sick Christian uh, podcast. I'm your host, Nate. I was not here because I was very under the weather today. I'm still not doing much better, but at least my throat is not breathing fire, so I can uh, talk a little bit. All right. Um, Has worship changed over the years? That is our first topic. Morality, slaves, and the Talmud. Um, if people want to talk about the um, moral law and you know the the civil and ceremonial law, the, the 613 commandments um, for the Israelites in, in the Old Testament, the only way you can do it justice is to understand exactly what you're talking about, and the only way to do that is through the Talmud. So um, if people just want to say things like, God says if you, uh, you know, uh, a woman has to marry a rapist if they pay 50 shekels, um, or you can beat your slave, and if they live, you're all good. Um, God's happy. If you want to spout some stuff like that, um, it's nonsense. And if you want to know the proper understanding, call your local rabbi or go read it in the Talmud. There, I mean, it's like 37 Encyclopedia Britannica-type books dedicated to explaining all this law in great detail. So when it says something in the Old Testament that's a bullet point, like a one-line sentence, like, hey, if this, then that. There is a ton of context and stuff around that sentence. Enough to take up, like, you know, what we would consider chapters or, like, 30 pages um, about each of these things, if not more. So um, do you think in 30 pages it's going to give you more insight and nuance than just reading one line in a Bible and saying God's evil? Yes, it is. So go do that. Then we talked to Josh, uh, Dr. Dr. What? <laughs> I can't even talk. I'm going back to bed. Oh, this day. Dr. Joshua Bowen joins us, and we talk. Uh, we have a really good conversation. It's always nice when he, uh, when he stops by. Um, always calm, civil, really deep, good discussions um, about the Old Testament. And then someone has some questions about homosexuality in the Old Testament and versus the understanding in Near East Asia and stuff during that. Uh, why do people have an unfavorable view of it? Did the people in the Old Testament understand it differently? Is it really that bad? Well, have you read the Bible? Um, you know, for the people of the times back then, um, how did they understand it? And then we get into some more stuff about the morality of God, because I, I guess people want to put God on trial. So, you know, good luck with that. Um, <laughs> anyway, so, um, yes, these are the topics we cover today. Uh, I'm going to take a bunch of medicine and go back to bed. All right, have an awesome day. See you guys later. Peace out. Thank you. Hey, hey. Um, I think greeting someone kindly is so important. Um, as opposed to, oh, you again? <laughs> uh, I would invite everyone to Josh, Dr. Josh, uh, if he's doing tonight. He does a YouTube live. On, uh, well, no, wouldn't be, would it be tonight, Dr. Josh? Let me, let me look. I'll post it in the chat. Uh, twice a month, he's on a YouTube with uh, Kip Davis. It's wonderful. So that's what I had to say for now. Other than, how are you? Oh, I'm sick. <laughs> Yesterday I wasn't here because I was really sick, and today I think I may actually feel worse, but my throat doesn't hurt anymore. So we'll we'll see how I how long I last. <laughs> so yay! Alrighty. Um, well, that brings me to think, what about the new, what do you think has changed in, um, worship from, let's say your grandmother's day to your kid's day? 
What has changed in the last few generations in religion? Anybody? That's a good good question. I don't, I don't know if, I don't know if, I don't know if I'd say it changed so much from generation to generation. Um, Because I mean, I I think the basics are there. I think it would just be individual people. So I I think, like, I'm thinking like uh, it would be more, um, you know, emotional for some, it would be more stoic and meditative for others. But I think those are probably the the same formulas that have been around um, forever. But that's that's a good question that makes you think because I'm thinking you know like my my grandpa or grandma for example would um you know they may be um they're more like private and you could see they're in like you know like contemplation and and stuff like that or prayer or whatever um and you know I like to think maybe I'm the same way I'm kind of more uh, not so expressive, not so outward, more more private. Um, but then you see other people, like uh, Sean down there. Let me invite him up. Um, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say he he can get pretty expressive when he uh, when he worships. Um, and so I, I doubt. And you see all the way back to Bible times, like um, you know when when David like you know was dancing and like you know going crazy, and his wife's like, hey, you need to calm down. He's like, why? I'm worshiping God. So she was like embarrassed by how expressive he was. Um, so yeah, I don't think worship has changed because um, there's only so many ways to do it, right? Like very expressive, very inward, very outward, very private. Um, it, it's more about the the person, I think, than the generation. What do you think, Sean? Are you uh, expressive when you worship? I just have a feeling you are. I am very expressive when I worship. I lift my <laughs> hand. I I will shed tears. I will dance. I will clap my hands. I will shout. And all these you would find in the Bible. Shout to the Lord with a voice of triumph. Clap your hands, O ye people. Sing unto the Lord a new song. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. You can find all this in the scripture when it's talking about praising and worshiping God. So, being very expressive is very, very Biblical and very sounds like commands to me when I actually read them. Lift up your hands. Don't give you a a choice about it. It says lift up your hands and bless the Lord. It says clap your hands all you people. That means that don't sound like a choice right there. What that sounds like is a command to me that everything that have breath, praise ye the Lord. I think King James says it real good right now. Let everything that have breath, praise ye the Lord. Some of us, some of us are musicians, and they praise the Lord. I tell you, I ain't never heard a silent musician yet. A silent musician. Ah. Well, hello, Sean. Nice to meet you. I'm Nate. <laughs> Good morning, Nate. It is a pleasure to meet you. Yes, sir, Nate, man. I, I, I was about, I was about to, <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, like, I'm, I'm pretty silent. I mean, like, vocally and stuff. Like, I mean, that's the thing. Like, whenever I'm playing, playing music or, like, drums or guitar or something, uh, you know, I let, I let those instruments speak. And I, I like that. Like, I mean, I, I in, enjoy, um, you know, that route. But it's not like I'm yelling and screaming while I'm also playing drums. <laughs> if that's what we're talking about. 
Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Glory to God. For the uh, yeah, Jonah, there's a question in chat, but do you wanna do you wanna respond to that real quick? I think um well well yeah, let's get let's get Sean to ask Sean to answer the question. Do you think worship has changed over the generations? Uh, like from from Bible times, your grandparents to you now, or do you think that there's always been a couple ways of worship, like like what you, we just talked about, and it's 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 um, been the same through the generations. It's just different between people. I think it's just the styles of worship. So, uh, some folks are just playing. All they want to hear is the hymns. Some folks want to hear that. Uh, contemporary Christian. Some folks want to hear gospel music, whether it's Southern gospel or what we will call urban gospel. But if it comes in the hip hop form, jazz form, what worship has gone through has hit every form of musical style and there is, from box to boogie. And just because it sounded that way to your grandparents, big mama and them, it's because that's the way they did it. Yes, there's been a change. But in the style of worship, but not in the person who worship. Uh, well, Joanna, does that speak to you question, your question, at least in our opinions? <laughs> well, you're on mute, but let's just say we answered that. Uh, let's see in chat. Um, I was just putting Dr. Josh's uh, live. I think it would be nice if everyone would enjoy it, but there you go. Um, that is alive to something he uh, did last week. So I really didn't hear the brother's answer. I didn't mean so much as how do we worship, but has worship changed? Now, from, I'll answer for myself. My grandparents were from Sicily. They came to America in the 20s. They went to church every day almost. Um, we had saints in our house that we put food next to. Okay, so yeah, for me, it's changed and trickled down to, you know, we went on Sundays well, my mom still does go on Sundays religiously, but then my generation, you, know, you go on Easter and, and Midnight Mass and look at my kids. They are spiritual, not religious. Have you heard this term? Yeah, and I hate it. <laughs> I knew you would. So what is, I'm just bringing up, um, the trickling, watering down. Has, has religion not kept the... Um, the attention of the youth. Well, I, I think it's a, a lot. Well, for one, yes, what you say is true, but I mean, that, that is just history repeating. So like, you know, there've been people like that uh, again, since like, we'll just stick to Bible times. So for thousands of years, there's still been people who weren't religious and, you know, fools said in their heart, there is no God, um, things like that. So we know the same type of people that are around today are the same type of outlooks people had back then. So it's not like uh, people have got more or less religious. I mean, it, it would, be dependent on the people, right? So like, uh, I hope I'm making sense because as a culture, yes, our culture is very unreligious, but also you had societies like that back then. So it was like an ebb and flow. 
but I think that's also why, at least for Christianity, the proverb says, you know, train a child in the way they go. So when they're old, they won't depart. And, you know, I will say going back from my great grandparents that I know, uh, they did that for my grandma when she got older, she did that for her kids, my mom and my parents did that for me. And, you know, I'm doing that for my children. So, um, uh, for, for my family and as far back as I know my ancestry, um, that's how it's, that's how it's been. So, um, um, yeah, but for others, yeah. I mean, if you don't, if you don't train a child or gosh, even give them good manners, like we see, see so much today, like it kills me how, you know, maybe see, some people say I'm too strict with, um, just like raising my children and, you know, calling them out for like bad behavior and stuff like that. But I mean, I'm, which now I don't really have to do because they're, I think pretty well-behaved kids. I mean, especially compared to everyone else. Um, but then I look around and I'm like, why won't, and these kids are like fighting, like these four or five-year-olds are like fighting with their parents and their parents are just putting up with it. I'm like, what kind of kid do you think you're encouraging? Anyway, so I mean, as a society, I think there's just a decline, like not, re, not just religiously, but all around. Um, but it's also, I think, been that way forever. Um, I guess it just depends on the family group you're a part of. Uh, but yeah, I mean, to what I, I definitely agree with a lot of what you're saying, especially in America. And I, I think it has more to do with, I think religion is the root, like Christianity and, you know, the God of the Bible will be the root. And even if people don't think it's true, if you like, don't do this, like it's very much a spiritual eternal thing. But even if people didn't believe the spiritual supernatural side, I think it would still serve society very well to raise them with like the, the moral kind of child upbringing uh, financial principles, things like that in the Bible, I think it would make for, you know, a polite, um, a holistic, kind society. Um, anyway. Uh, if I may, Nate, my wife and I were actually talking about this on, on yesterday. Uh, there was a time children were seen and not heard. <laughs> I was brought up during the time when grown folks were talking, you were either in the backyard playing, uh, riding your bike up and down the street, or in your bedroom. <laughs> you, know, you wasn't in the living room with the grown folks, because that was grown folks' business. We have a saying in the community, stay out of grown folks' business. No child, no children allowed. I didn't get a chance to express myself to my dad or my mom until I graduated high school. That's when I could open my mouth and say something. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I agree. Like, whenever I'm trying to talk to neighbors or friends or stuff like that, and, uh, you know, if someone asks me and my kids are around, um, I mean, they pretty much don't. Every now and then they'll forget and try to, like, talk or interrupt, and I just kind of snap and look at them. Not snap on them, like snap my fingers. Like, hey, what are you doing? Like, oh, sorry. And they'll, they'll be reminded. Um, so I like to think that's part of the training process. Or I'll be like, hey, we're talking. Like, um, you know, go play. I'll call you back when I'm ready. Um, but when uh, pretty much no one else does that. Um, so when I'm, I'm trying to talk and have a conversation with an adult and their kids are just like hanging all over them, like whining, screaming. They're trying to ha like multitask and have two conversations. I just, I just give up. Like, I'm not going to try to like tell them how to raise their kid unless they ask. Then I'll never stop. Um, but, um, on the other hand, like, why am I competing with a little three-year-old demon? 
Um, so, so if, if, um, you know, the parents aren't going to talk, then I guess it's not that important. So I, I just I'm like, all right, so I'll just stop talking. Um, <laughs> uh, Keegan, before there, there's still that question in chat I want to get to, but it's going to take us off topic. But, um, did you want to say anything about this first? Uh, no, no, no. I have another question. Okay. Well, I'll just answer that real quick. Um, Gasfac had something. And not, hang on, we'll get to gas in a minute. Okay, so question for Nate. Are you a Christian nationalist? Um, depending how you define that term, I could support it, sure. Do I think it's ever going to happen? Probably not. Um, if you define that term a very uh, different way, I'd be like, no, that's not my thing. So we, we've talked about that. It's a topic that comes up pretty often. So there are ways which I would not support. And then there are other ways which I'd be like, well, yeah, that's basically just being a decent person at life and believing in Jesus for your savior, um, you know, God, family, country. I'm like, well, yeah, what decent, patriotic, loving, kind Christian wouldn't support that? Um, so it depends on the definition of terms. Uh, let's see. Are you a Trump supporter? I will happily uh, vote for him in 2024. Um, so regardless of any personal, personal, personal stuff like that, um, I think we've got four years of him on the record doing very good things just across multiple categories for this country, um, you know, freedom for religion, um, put us in a much better financial state, um, things like that. So very, very conservative across the board, um, not just in, in like, you know, ways people like think conservative, but I mean like fisc fiscally responsible, uh, things like that, things that people don't really care a lot about because they focus a lot more on buzzwords and, uh, you know, like, he's a racist, he's a bigot, even though no one can fi find any like examples that hold water. Um, so yes, I, I will be very happy to vote for him in 2024. Um, okay, let's see. Stoning a non-virgin on her wedding night and keeping slaves sounds like a great moral law for civilization, Nate. Glad you encouraged that. Are you an Israelite? I am not an Israelite. So that's not your law. That's not my law. If you want to know what I think we should be doing, read the New Testament. And that's what I think we should be doing. So if uh, you used to be a thief, or if you're currently a thief, stop it, get a job, work, so then you can be charitable and give to people who are truly in need. Um, let's see, what else? Um, hey, McZed, welcome. We have one more person that wanted to say something before um, I say hi to you, but welcome, glad you're here. Um, you know, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, uh, things like that. Basically be a good person who loves God. Um, Hey, Keegan, what's up? You said you had another question. McZen, let me know if you... Um, oh, hang on. That's a lot of... Whoa! Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's awful. I don't know what you're doing, but that is terrible. Um, I don't know if it's a bad connection or like feedback, but it was really loud. Um, check your connections and, and try again. That was really hard on the ears. Uh, go ahead and make sure everything's good and give it another shot. Maybe it's just where you were that was really noisy. And I thought I saw McZed. Would anyone else have anything to say about that until someone else talks? I have a feeling McZed was going to say something about the Israelite law, but um, he didn't make it to stage. Uh, Sean, you got anything to say about any of these topics? Uh, well, my, 
my stepdaughter's on the phone with me. All right. But uh, the scripture says in Galatians 3.11 that no one is justified by the law. No one. Says Not what? Anyone. You're cutting out. Uh, Galatians 3.11. No one is justified by the law. Yep. All right. Acts 15. That why, uh, the, the Jerusalem Council said it like this. Why are you trying to put a yoke upon the brothers that that our fathers couldn't even meaning the patriarchs? Meaning the law. Yep. Hey, guess welcome. Yo, what up? Good morning. What's up? Good morning. I haven't had my coffee, so I'm gonna have to dip out for that. But I just had a quick question. I was wondering if you um. So are you like a subjectivist, Nate? Depending on what? Like for morals? Because uh, I mentioned some Old Testament laws, <clears throat> and you said, no, those are like for the Jews or something. So that would imply that um, morals are subjective to you because it depends on the person and the time and place. Well, there's morals, but there's also law. Like a law doesn't I, – I, I would want to think about that for a minute, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say – that a law doesn't have to have morality attached. It doesn't. Um, I mean, because if you have a law that just said, I mean, the only morality would be in obeying or disobeying the law. Like the law itself wouldn't have to be a law to legislate morality. Um, but, but no. So like, let me back up. I'll, I'll just put that there. Cause I, I'd want to think about that, but I'm going to say like, not all laws have to be moral. Like, um, you know, be, I don't know if, if be kind, rewind. Remember that when we all had VCR tapes and, it was like, I mean, it wasn't a law, but I mean, if it was, um, where it wasn't a moral thing to like necessarily rewind the tape for your for the next person that rented it. It was just kind of like an, an act of kindness or a common sense thing you did. Um, but no, so the law is, is for, um, you know, it was for the Israelite people and it was specifically to set them apart. So no, I think uh, morality is objective and it comes from God because he's the, he's the only one um, on that level with no challengers. So what he says is the objective benchmark. However, since we are all humans and we are all subjective creatures, we will be subjective in fulfilling that morality. So, yeah. So, well, maybe I'm misunderstanding you. So I brought up like the, the, like, you know, you should stone your, like if your daughter is not a virgin on a wedding night, you should stone her or take her before father's house and stone her. Um, that, that's something like, in those times, you ought to do that. So that is like the good thing. That's the moral thing to do. So um, so if you're saying it's not good now for us or we don't follow that, then it seems like it's a subjective law. So like things are – it's not like morally objective that that was the case, but it's subjective to time and place, right? Well, but it also doesn't have to be moral. So um, first of all, I, I'm not familiar with the way you're quoting that. I, I'm, I want to say it sounds like if that's from – our Bible, it's out of context. I'd want to see the exact thing that talks about, um, you know, I know there's like stoning for adultery and things like that, but, uh, you know, the whole thing on our wedding night, I, I would want to see that. I'm not familiar with it. Um, I'd want to make sure we have the proper context. But also, again, like, does that have to be a moral law or does that have to be they, they you know, presumably would have been guilty of, of doing some sort of crime. Um, so this is the punishment for that. Um, does that have to be necessarily morality or does it have to be if this, then that like truth and consequences type thing? 
Yeah, well, laws are generally like tied with morals, like what we what is good or what is legal is generally not always, but it's it's tied. It's very closely tied to ethics. So like what you ought do is usually what's legal. Um, but yeah, if you make a law that says like, I don't know, we could take a lot of different examples like the flood. So God killing babies in the flood um, is killing babies objectively good there. And so it's objectively good throughout time or is it subjective to time and place? Well, no, I think it, it doesn't have to do with us because ultimately it's God doing this. So like you'd have to be, you'd have to have like, you know, God's data sheet in front of you to be able to pronounce some sort of morality over that. Because if God's looking at this and we see from, you know, from us, we're like, oh, the babies, no, the babies. Um, maybe God is seeing them as, yeah, I'm looking at this, you know, from the end of time backwards or from infinite time backwards. And these are all like, you know, may as well be 80 year old dudes who have led a murderous, warring life. So <clears throat> I'm doing the world a favor by ending them now. Sure, it, it seems bad for you because it looks like a bunch of little babies. But I know that, you know, it's like puppies. When puppies grow old, they turn into a dog and uh, then they bite people. Um, so it's like if, if God's like, well, what? Should I allow these cute little babies to continue existing so they can, you know, end the world with the amount of terror and pain they'll cause? Um, that wouldn't be just. But unless we're God and have like God's data, then we're in no position to pronounce that. And if we were, if we were on God's level, if someone else was on God's level, then I would say morality would be subjective because you have another person uh, that would rival God. And then it would be two, like two people, two persons on that playing field that would basically have their own subjective opinions. But since nothing else can rival God, that's why I say it's subjective. Right. So that, yeah. So I'm not trying to figure out what's right or wrong. I'm trying to figure out what, if, if morality is like subjective or objective. So if we take the verse, it looks like Josh posted up Deuteronomy uh, 22 here. Um, so if it was good to take a non-virgin to her father's doorstep and stone her to death, but somehow now it's not good. It seems like that is the definition of subjective. It was good back then, but now we should not do it. It's not good now. But so how is that objective? Because there's a category shift. I mean, that you could say that's subjective. Um, not that morality is, but like specifically the whole, um, you know, the whole 613 laws of Moses were specifically for Israelites. So I don't know how, um, I mean, it seems easy that you could say on one hand that um, it's subjective because he told a certain group of people to do a certain things and he didn't tell another, the rest of the people to do those same things. So it's subjective. But I would say that's the law that's subjective, um, not necessarily morality. And I mean, that's my position, right? So like you can say like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm 75, 30 subjective or, you know, you can divide my psyche on this however you want, but I'm, I'm telling you my position is, and you can turn, you can label whatever you want, but my position is morality is objective because of the aforementioned reasons. And the law for the Israelites was for, specifically for a certain group of people for a certain time. Um, so then do with that what you will. So I don't, I don't care about labeling it myself other than morality is objective because of God. He's the lawgiver. No one can challenge him. That's my reasoning. So call that, that whatever you will. A certain group of people for a certain time, would that correlate with First uh, Corinthians 13? Whereas there are tongues, they will cease. So meaning that was only for a certain time. Right? Well, some would say yes, but I mean, that's, that's nothing to do with the law. But some would say yes. Others would say no. But also, they will cease. Do I have a background noise anymore, Nate? Uh, no, you're good. Okay. okay. Also, you know, gas, 
you're trying to find like is this good is this you know relatively bad um the law but when when jesus came this is not about whether the law was good or bad that we are just not bound to it now so the idea that you know you're trying to find this well is it good is it bad we're not saying that the law was bad to begin with just because of a, a guilty a guilty party right guess i mean we question what's good and bad now um, and in a hundred years from now, people are going to go, well, what, that was really bad that they were doing. Like you're just using time as a relative thing to find some form of morality. But all I'm saying is that we're just not bound to that law anymore. That, that, that's it. Sounds pretty subjective to me. So like, if I say, like, if I'm oh, God and I make a commandment, like do, yeah. do X or Y, but then like later we change it. It just, that just seems like the definition of subjective moral. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure how you're let parsing ask, that. Let me ask you a question, uh, Dash. When you step into another nation, are you not subject subject to their rules, regulations, and law? Yeah, well, I don't believe objective. I'm not the one saying objectives are moral or morals are objective. When you step into another nation, whether it be an embassy in the United Nations, if you step into that place, you are under that nation's law, rules, and regulations. Correct? Yeah, morals are subjective. I'm glad we agree. <laughs> that's, that's subjective. I'm just asking. Yeah, I can't, it's hard to hear you, too, Apostle. Sorry. I, I, it's all right. Uh, sometimes I'm getting on, when I'm on these roads, uh, it's hard. But I've got a full bar, so I don't know why you can't understand. But it might be just the distance to your mic, but be be careful with driving. You got to pay attention to the road. Too. <laughs> closer, otherwise, it'd be in my mouth. <laughs> uh, Dr. Josh, you wanted to say something? Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I just wanted to guess. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's I, I don't. It doesn't sound like Gas's question is strictly about law. It's more like, and again, guys, step in and correct me if you think I'm misrepresenting what you're saying. If the law were to say, like, if, you know, if, if Moses 4.13, right, said, um, you know, uh, steal, thou shalt steal from your neighbor, um, you know, or that thou shalt murder thy neighbor on a Thursday, um, that, that we would look at that and we would say, okay, that sounds immoral. We would not consider that to be moral today. So in that circumstance, um, it, it seems like the answer, that was a law for Israel to set them apart, would not like answer the, it, it wouldn't deal with the issue that's brought up from a moral standpoint. Gas, is that a fair example, do you think? Yeah, we could uh, we could go with that. It's maybe not quite what I was saying, but yeah, maybe I kind of want to hear hear more about that because maybe I don't understand. Uh, You're saying, so are you making a distinguishment between laws and morals here? Because to me, it almost seems like laws and morals are closely tied, but maybe I've just got a different conception. No, I, I it just sounded like you were like by by bringing up like for example slavery or or um, you know. Uh, a young bride that's found not to be a virgin being stoned. These are things that we would consider to be immoral today. Right. And so it sounds like your, your question is not 
so much asking like, what do you think about law? But it, it sounds like the law is endorsing something that we would consider to be immoral today. And so it sounds like morality then is subjective under that view. Otherwise you would have to say, or like, like Nate, it sounds like you would have to say something like, um, maybe what you were trying to say there is maybe we don't understand Deuteronomy 22. Maybe there's another context or something where it's actually not immoral or so. Is that, is that, that's, I'm just trying to clarify what I, I think you're asking guess. That's all. Well, and I mean, maybe that's a good point, Josh. We can take uh, we can take a instead of a hypothetical, we can take a real life example here in a second. But I mean, that's one thing. Also, people read the bullet points of the Old Testament and think, "Oh my gosh, how evil!" Um, and even if they had the true understanding, they may still think it's evil. But you should get the true understanding. So if you care, the best way to do that is, well, call a rabbi or read the answer through the Torah. Because if it just says, "Oh, wife's not a virgin, stoner," there's there's like chapters and like 20 or 30 pages about each of these 613 points. So if you don't read all the context and all of the stuff about it, um, it's also like, like the rapist thing, right? Like, right. Like some people will say, Oh, if you want to rape someone, pay 50 shekels and you're good to go. That's not even near the case. That's not even like half of it. Like there's a whole, like, I mean, there's a whole, like, um, you know, thing in the Talmud, like, uh, you know, among others, the woman gets a choice. So, uh, you know, she's like, no, he raped me. I'm not going to marry him then that guy's probably going to die. So, I mean, you know, there's all kinds of things. So if you want to know the proper way to understand the 613 Levitical laws, the only way is the way whose laws, the people whose laws they actually are. You've got to understand it, how the Talmud says it. Um, anyway, but th th we could just take a concrete example, right? So the Bible says, uh, uh, let's see, I mean, take homosexuality, right? That's something that a lot of people today who are, um, you know, think is acceptable and perfectly moral. Well, the Bible says it's not. So, or, uh, you know, sex outside of marriage of any um, sex, any biological sex, male, female, doesn't matter. Um, you know, it talks about if it's outside of marriage, that is immoral. There's lots of people that disagree with that and say, no, it's not. That doesn't matter. Like, who needs to be married? Why does that matter? Well, for a Christian, um, that it's still, it's immoral. It's considered immoral. So that's something that people will say has changed and it's not immoral anymore, but we believe God says, yes, it is immoral. So don't do it. So we shouldn't do it. Sure. And Josh, that yeah, will ever change. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I think Josh, that was a good explanation there. And I think, yeah, I got what you're saying. So Nate, I got a question for you here. So do you, um, does it strike you as moral to own somebody and then, um, and they, let, let's say you own somebody and they have a wife and they have kids and those kids are now your property for the rest of their lives. Does that sound like a moral thing to you? I love that question. No, it doesn't. So if I was back in Bible days and people would be like, Nate, why don't you own slaves? We conquered these people in war. They're your property. Oh, well, God didn't command me to own slaves, so I'm not going to own slaves. It doesn't seem good to me. So Nate doesn't have slaves. That means Nate may have to do a little harder work in the field because I it doesn't seem good to me. Um, on the other hand, if, um, you know, let's just say the context was something like, hey, these people who are your sworn enemies, um, you know, they're, they're going to, like, kill you and your whole family and do unspeakable things to them first um, unless you conquer them in battle. And we don't exactly have prisons. So, um, you know, you can keep them and, uh, you know, make them do some work for you. Uh, and if they ever get free they're 100% going to murder you and your entire family. 
Um, if someone wants to take that risk, I'd be like, okay, well, I, I can't put them in prison. I don't want to, I don't want to kill them because you know, I don't, I don't want that on my conscience. Um, so I'll just keep them and I guess, yeah, call them my slave. Uh, but again, I, I don't like that. So I'd be like, well, well, no. Um, so maybe it would have to be a battle of the death. It's like, Hey, um, if I set you free, are you going to kill me? Yes. Well, I, I want to set you free, but I don't, I don't want to have to kill you. Um, you going to set me, can I set you free? I'll kill you. <laughs> so maybe the answer is just like set them free and let them try to kill you and, you know, fight to the death and see who wins. So, I mean, sometimes like context does play a key part, but no, um, it doesn't seem good to me to own people. So uh, I, I would not be owning people. I gotcha. Does that, so does that like bring up like your intuitions tell you strongly, very strongly that it's not good to own people. It's not good to stone, take a virgin to her father's doorstep and stone her to death on her wedding night. Those things very intuitively seem very wrong to you. But these are, these are commandments from an all moral, all good objective God, but they strike you as very wrong. So how do you like, how do you live with that, those kind of things going on at the same time? Well, this couldn't have happened in a better possible way. I'm not going to say it's like God ordained this, but I mean, it just coincidentally fell right in line. Um, so the Bible tells us, you know, in, I believe it's Galatians, um, how Paul contrasts the law of the spirit the, the true moral nature of the God we should be following with the law. And he calls the law, the 613 commands of, of Moses, he calls it the law of the sin of sin and death. And he tells us how it only serves, it cannot save us. It only serves to show us how sinful we are. So I like to think, for example, if the Bible's like, hey, you can own slaves. And it's like, well, hey, you know, it says it's permissible. It says I can do it, so I'm going to do it. Does that serve as like a great moral example? Or if people think about that, does that serve to show how sinful they are? And they're like, well, wait, just because it says I can, should I? And I like to think a lot of people are like, well, no, that doesn't set well with me. Um, and Paul contrasts that and says, you're following the law of the spirit, not the law of sin and death. So even like, uh, you know, the law said when Jesus talked to the people, um, the woman who they were at the stone, you know, the law said that uh, it would have been, it would have been okay, and they're about to stone her for, you know, adultery and all this stuff. There's some other technicalities maybe involving, like, witnesses and stuff like that. But, but I mean, the people felt justified by the law, and they were about to, like, stone the chick. And Jesus says, hey, who, who doesn't have sin? Go ahead and cast the first stone. So I think he was showing people that, look, just because you can do something, you are legally permitted to do something, doesn't mean you have to do it. Doesn't mean you should do it. So I, I think that's a great contrast with the law of sin and death versus the law of the spirit. How Paul also says, and I'll shut up, how people who didn't even have this law instinctively knew what was right and did it. And that's like a testament to, you know, us being created in the image of God and God's love and us following God's law. So that was just excellent. It pieced together like a little Lego house. What do you think about that, Gus? Um, sure. I think that that could be, that, I just feel like that, that could be a good point. Um, but like, let's say your neighbor, let's say you found, saw your neighbor, um, they had a similar situation where they owned slaves. You saw them, um, they were actually out in their front yard and they were beating their slave. But of course, the slave would live for three days. So this, this is something within the bounds of God's morality. So if you walked out and you saw your neighbor beating their slave, would you say, oh, you know, it's a great, beautiful day. I'm just going to enjoy it. Nothing wrong is going on here. 
Or would you say, you know, that's actually a bad thing and he should not be beating his slave within an inch of his life, but he survives within three days. So it's totally fine. Which one of those, which kind of thought would you have there? Would you say like, you know, it's all good. Everything's all good here. Would you say, you know, that's a bad thing. Maybe he should not be doing that. Well, hypotheticals are never good because, you know, we never fully know what options are available to us. Um, but, um, you know, if I'm allowed to hypothesize some options, um, yeah, I mean, I'd probably, you know, like to have a talk with him. Be like, hey, why do you think this is good? Like, hey, maybe you need a help. Maybe, uh, maybe instead of you know having slaves that you're beating the crap out of, why don't we work? To, let's work together. You know, let's, uh, you know, let's plow your field together, and you don't need slaves. Um, or um, it could be like uh, I'd be like, well, hey, man, I don't like that, but yes, it is. It is your your right uh, to do this. So just because it's your right doesn't make it right. Um, and I would try to talk to them, uh, kind of like how today. Christians feel like, uh, you know, abortion is straight up murder, unjustified killing of a life. Yet, um, it's few and far between uh, where someone who says they're a Christian will actually try to go out and physically do something to stop it. Even some of the most ardent protesters will, will go with like their signs and stuff like that and picket abortion clinics, um, trying to persuade the person not to go in and go through with it. But ultimately, um, there are very, very few, like, I mean, like, you can count on two hands, the ones who will physically try to prevent that person from doing it because it is their right. You know, if it, they're in an area where it's their right, then it is their right. And, um, you know, we begrudgingly, um, you know, watch them go through and what we perceive to be murdering, unjustified killing of their baby. So, um, you know, it could be one of those things. I'm like, well, look, I hate every bit of this and I'll try my best to talk you out of it. But at the end of the day, the, the choice is yours. So if you want to do it, we just have to trust that, you know, God is the potter, we're the clay and, he knows the end from the beginning, that type of, you know, things. So um, God's got this. Like, if God's going to allow it, then, I mean, who am I to physically try to force uh, you to stop it? So there are a gambit of things depending on what options are available to us in that scenario. Sure. This is probably, okay. Well, I think, um, I think you've been honest here. I think it's a little bit... Um, it just seems, it seems to me like our intuitions are not, they're, of course, they're not always right. Like you can't always trust your intuition. Sometimes they're wrong. Sometimes you can delude yourself and, and whatnot. Um, but it seems like this kind of like having to massage uh, the scenario and try to find different ways to go about it. Like if it's truly right and it's a good thing, the all good, all loving God commanded that it's good to beat your slave. Um, it seems like it wouldn't just be like, Oh, well, maybe this, maybe that, maybe that. Like, you could just say, yep, God commanded it. It's totally cool. I'm chill with well, it. Well, if, so if that it seems true, like... Well, sure, well hang on. If that, if that was accurate. First of all, God, God, you know, never commanded it. He never said, hey, you, you can beat your slave, and if they don't die, uh, this is pleasing in the sight of the Lord. That never happened. So allowing something, and we can get into the permissive will. So, I mean, I, I was only massaging things since you kind of presented a very black and white hypothetical. So, so that's why. So, like, basically, going back to the end, it's like, good. Um, okay, so if God permits something, uh, meaning he's going like, to command the earth to swallow you up for doing something. Um, so if God allows it, that doesn't mean um, you must do it. It doesn't mean he's commanding you. And it doesn't mean he's super happy, even if you follow through with it. Uh, the whole reason for the law, again, was to show how sinful people are and how they cannot save themselves, which is to turn their hearts to God. Um, so so there's, there's that. Um, so, I mean, you know, if our Bible said like a line, like I don't need to be an apologist. If God, if God, uh, the Bible said, um, you know, you may, uh, 
women have to marry their rapists and you must own slaves and this is pleasing to God. He'd be like, huh, yep, that's how it is. And I'd have to decide if, you know, might makes uh, right or if might makes the way it is and decide if I want to follow this God that, you know, seems a little, uh, um, a little different than one I'd kind of like to align with and follow. Um, that'd be a tough conversation. But that's just not accurate the way the Bible presents it. So that's why we don't do that. So, I mean, if it said that, I'd be like, hey, straight up, there's no way around it. Um, you know, consult the Tal Talmud. There's one page on the subject. And it said, yeah, God commanded these abhorrent things. So, you know, make your choice. Um, but since that's not the case, my interest is just pointing out what it actually um, says. And, and I think that the, the most concise I can be is this shows the difference in the Old Testament law of Moses, just like divorce. Um, when Jesus says, uh, look, the only reason Moses allowed you to divorce was because of the hardness of your hearts. Like it was never supposed to be this way. Um, so things like that, like a contrast with the law of Moses and the law of the spirit. So someone that's completely in tune with the law of the spirit, um, I like to think would, would, well, I mean, read the New Testament. Like the morality you see in the New Testament is harping on like this law of the spirit and like God in us leading us into, uh, you know, the right path, the right way. That's fair. Yeah. I think, um, I didn't, yeah, I, I agree that like, um, it's not like God's like commanding you to own slaves, but, um, it is, so it is allowed. So it's like, if you walk outside and your neighbor's mowing their lawn, that's allowed. It's all good. Nothing's going on there. So you just, you know, continue on your day. Um, it'd be the same thing if you're, if you walked out in, you know, the Jewish biblical times and somebody's beating their slave in their front yard, that should to you strike you as like, oh yeah, this is allowed. Nothing, nothing bad's going on here. This is all good. But it seems like you have a strong intuition that that is a bad thing. And so, yeah, I think, I think we might be going in circles at that point, but that's kind of my main thing is that if, if that truly is allowable, it's good to go. There shouldn't be a problem. Um, but it seems like your intuitions and a lot of people's, probably most people's are going to tell them that that is an evil thing rather than anything commanded by a good God or allowed by a good God rather. Yeah. And the last thing I'd say is again, keep in mind, you know, to understand this because <laughs> the picture you paint, which I, I honestly haven't looked into the beating the slave in the, in the Talmud, or if I have, I don't remember it's been so long, but I have looked into, you know, so like the 50 shekels and the rapist and like slavery in general. So um, I can't give you, the end answer for this, but um, I, I have a hard time based on all the other stuff I have painstakingly looked up and found like, oh, ah, that's reasonable by pretty much any metric. Um, that you're not just going to walk out one day and see an, a slave owner beating the crap out of a slave um, and be like, hey, it's my right, I can do this, and they're like out there with a Bud Light and uh, you know a whip. Um, I, I just have a hard time um, thinking that the Talmud is so clear and exhaustive on everything else in the law that there wouldn't be a whole bunch of context surrounding what that actually means. Um, and I don't know, cause I haven't looked it up. Uh, maybe if Josh can offer some insight on like, you know, that what the Talmud says about that subject or, um, you know, call your local rabbi. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly would encourage uh, someone interested in what the, the Talmud says about something that, you know, like Rabbi Ori is a great person to talk to. Um, I am interested, though, in the methodology, um, Nate, because that, like that's interesting to me. I, I like I think it's a great thing to uh, investigate what any like you know group that utilizes an ancient text you know utilizes as an interpretive framework, and that's certainly what you're talking about with you know Judaism. Um, and I think that the, the Talmud is but one example of 
uh, you know, how they're taking a, a text that they hold sacred and, and, and trying to understand it through a framework that makes it applicable as time goes by in various situations. But it is interesting to me to hear you citing it um, because that, it, it well, two things. Um, one, it, it, it is very much a, like a, a, a Jewish understanding uh, of the Hebrew Bible, um, which is not normally what I hear uh, Christians referring to. Um, so that's, that's, I think that's, I think that's good. Um, sorry to be clear. Um, but to, to, and Rab, if Rabbi Ori were here, he would, I, I think a hundred percent agree with me. You know, the Talmud is a much later compilation, right? So, I mean, we're talking about, you know, texts that, uh, you know, develop early in the first millennium and then, you know, to, to go, go through as the first millennium CE develops. Uh, I can't remember where it, where it sort of comes to close, like right around six, seven century or something. I can't remember. It's not my, not my but field, all, but, but, but you okay. and, uh, Uri, you, you and Uri would also agree that, you know, well, Uri would agree at least that, you know, the oral Talmud was kept since Sinai, since they got the first 10 commandments. Um, so it was oral tradition. It just happened to be much later when someone decided, Hey, it'd be a good idea to write this down. I think that he would, and I, I wish he were here, uh, but I suspect it because I feel like I've talked to him about this before. I think he would say, I'm going to put on my theological hat to answer this question. Um, but if he put on a historical critical hat, he would say, we don't, like, we certainly don't have evidence of that. And, and, uh, and, and I, I mean, I know there's a difference. Like, I, I appreciate Uri. Um, and and I, I mean, it's weird because, you know, when you hear, like, liberal or conservative and different things, if you already have an idea of what that means, um, that, that colors it. So, you know, he would say he's like a, a conservative Jew, but that does not mean, um, um, you know, what a lot of people think it means. Like you're a conservative politically or something like that. Um, so, I mean, it's only conservative because like, you know, in like liberal Judaism is, is basically like the most, you know, progressive, like, um, um, you know, I'm, I'm parroting my, my rabbi friend who is Orthodox. Uh, but he's like, no, look, if they're conservative, it's, it's basically imagine like the, the Democratic left-wing party of America who happens to be Jewish. I'm like, okay, your word's not mine. Um, but I mean, you know, I know like when my, I talked to my Orthodox rabbi friend, um, you know, like living in Israel, he's like a scholar, like he, he like does like ancient transcripts. Um, it's, it's crazy. But um, they have very different understandings. So, you know, far be it from me to tell people, you know, what Jews actually believe. Um, but I think it's totally within my, um, within my round to be able to parrot, uh, you know, what different Jewish sources have told me. Um, so, I mean, j just that. So I, I do appreciate Uri, but I know that he, you know, he disagrees greatly um, with the points my Orthodox Jewish friend makes. Um, and, you know, you can call it bias or whatever, but I know like the, my Orthodox friend, um, he, he's much, takes a much more kind of like traditional Christian evangelical approach to the Bible. Um, how, how a Christian would like the counterpart, like, you know, being like literal, things like that, oral tradition. Um, so a lot of the parts are very similar. Sorry for the rambling. I've got brain fog too. I'm no, like not no, feeling no, the greatest, no. but I, I would be, in, there. I would be interested because I hate, I hate speaking obviously for him or really anybody in Judaism. Cause it's, I don't think it's in at all my place. Um, just given what my area of expertise is, if I don't know how to ping somebody, I mean, it, it'd be interesting to hear what he would say about it. But, um, 
uh, Ema, I think is the screen name. Somebody wants to wants to ping them. Uh, but yeah, I think from a like from a historical critical standpoint, um, you know, if you if you read what later uh, even even later uh, texts from inside the Hebrew Bible, uh, for example, Deuteronomy 15, sort of engaging with what Exodus 21 said, um, in and of itself is a development, right? And Leviticus 25 is sort of responding to both chapters. So like you you see this sort of interbiblical harmonization taking place or, you know, maybe clarification would be another way that they would think of it. Um, but it, it is interesting uh, to hear, to hear you, um, like, uh, cite the Talmud again, not a bad thing. Uh, but it's, it's interesting. And I mean, the Talmud is not incredibly kind for, um, you know, the Christian view, um, you know, so, uh, it does not have a super favorable opinion of Jesus. Um, so it's not like, you know, I, I follow the Talmud for my religion. I mean, otherwise I'd be Jewish. Um, but when we're specifically talking about Jewish customs and Jewish laws, and we want to understand that for what it is. Well, then you have to go to the source. It's just just dishonest to talk about it like, um, you know, you, you know, you're fully well versed without consulting the sources of the people whose law it actually is. Um, so I mean, that's as far as I take it, like scholarship, right, uh, wise. So you can be like, well, look, this is what the Talmud actually says. This is what the observant Jewish people actually think. And this is how they get to that conclusion. Um, but if you want to talk about, you know, the eternal God, well, then, yes, repent and believe the gospel. Jesus Christ is what we're talking about. But if you want to know about some Israelite laws that have nothing to do with me, um, then let's talk about the Talmud. <laughs> so if I if I could, and then I promise I'll be quiet and let them remove on. Sorry, everybody. Um, to be clear, and again, I'm speaking from a historical critical perspective, so this is not coming through like a theological interpretive lens. Um, just to be clear, there's a difference. We would draw a very firm line of distinction between ancient Israelite understanding of you know sections of the law. Uh, or the Hebrew Bible, um, and Judaism's, particularly later Judaism's, interpretation of those same texts. Uh, I think in the same way that, like, if you were to read the book of Daniel during the Maccabean period, you would have a very different understanding of, you know, who, uh, the one who causes, you know, desolation, the abomination of desolation, who that is or what that last kingdom is compared to if you were reading second estras right later in the first millennium you know one is going to see it as the kingdom of greece later they're going to see it as the kingdom of rome so um i think those are what we have to be able to distinguish between those two so if you're saying judaism like judaism in the first century ce or later um you know particularly now absolutely i 100 percent agree that, you know if you if you don't understand what the talmud is saying about it um I think that's a, you know, I think that's a bad move. Um, but we, I think we have to distinguish, and I will promise I will land here, I think we have to distinguish between that and what the text would have meant to an ancient Israelite audience. Well, um, well I think that's true, but I mean, I, I think, you know, uh, again, channeling my uh, Orthodox, you know, rabbi friend, um, the only way, the only reason they're not carrying out these laws exactly how they've always been carried out is because they don't have the proper temple to do it. Um, so it, it sounds like in his estimation that whenever, you know, someday they get a, they get a temple, um, then they're going to resume carrying out the law, uh, not in a 2024 context, but in the ancient ways that they always have carried it out. 
Um, and uh, what else? I would also say, like, yeah, to, to Ezra's and um, Daniel, like, they may have had an idea, kind of like Christians have an idea, like, you know, how the Antichrist and Revelation will be fulfilled and end of days type stuff. Um, we may have some ideas, computers, technology, you know, certain political figures or people rising to prominence, but we don't know. So, uh, you know, they could have had some kind of understanding that, um, you know, it would be Greece or it would be whatever. But they wouldn't know. It would just it would just be an idea kind of like, you know, probably they're toying around in their mind like, well, hey, you know, let's pay attention. It could be this like we don't know for sure because it's a prophecy and the prophecy doesn't tell us exactly who or exactly what or when. Um, so it, there is something left to mystery, but we have a hunch that it's this. You don't have to be quiet, Josh. I, I appreciate you talking. It's always good when you can join us. Oh, sorry. I just don't want to. I don't want to monopolize that. They're really interesting people up here that could have very interesting. Would anyone to else say, like so. to? Uh, anyone else want to say anything about that? See, the floor is yours. Oh gosh. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I. I guess. Yeah. You know, like thinking about the Book of Daniel. Um, a really good friend of mine uh, who teaches up at um, Virginia Theological Seminary, Stephen Cook, Dr. Cook, uh, you know, he wrote the Yale uh, Bible Commentary, uh, the third volume on the book of Ezekiel. But he's written a lot about apocalyptic literature, and he's just, he's just such a super nice guy, and he's an Anglican Christian, right? Um, and what's interesting about one of, and I've, I've I hope I haven't said this in this room. If I'm repeating myself, please cut me off. I'm going to be quiet. But he he gave this excellent um, analogy to how ancient writers viewed apocalyptic literature uh, and the apocalypse in general. And it was like driving up the side of a mountain. Nate, have I talked about this before? I don't believe so. Okay. So like if, if you're driving up... Um, you know, the, the, around the, like the side of a mountain or something going along a road, like going up Pikes Peak or something out in Colorado, you know, you, you can get, you know, in a scary way too close to the edge and it'll, you can like start to see over the side and see, you know, like the bottom and it gets scary. And so you pull the car back to the left. Um, in the same way, the, the end, as it were, is likened unto the bottom. Right. And so what he said is like during the second century, during the time of Antiochus, the fourth, the car was starting to get close to the edge. Right. And so, you know, the, Daniel uh, or, you know, the, the, the writers of the book, Daniel, are looking over and seeing the bottom and like we're going over the cliff now. And then the, the car moved back to the left away from it later on you know, the Roman Empire, you know, or, or early in the, uh, like the first century, the car seemed to be going close to the edge again. So, the, you know, the, the end is coming in sight and then the car moves back to the left. It's like you're getting glimpses of the same end each time, but the car is moving back to the left. So it's not like there's a, there's a different end that's, you know, being prophesied. It's the same end. It's just you're getting glimpses of it and then the car is moving back to the left away from the edge. And I thought that was a really good analogy. Um, I don't think 
like he's coming at it through a theological lens, obviously. So I don't, I don't think that's what actually happened in like in reality, but I think for someone that does hold that position, I think that's a tremendously uh, apt analogy. If, if it made sense the way I said it. Uh, it does. Yeah. I think it's a good, good analogy. I mean, Hey, when is, when is driving too close to the road ever not a good analogy? <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's good. I'd have, I'd have to think about exactly what he was talking about to decide if I totally agree, but I mean, sounds good. I had a super quick side tangent to ask Josh real quick. Um, if you wanted to switch over, just a quick comment. But <laughs> uh, I feel like there's, because like Josh, you're like um, well-read and studied and you got a PhD and everything. And so there's some there's some feeling in me and maybe others that like, oh, he should like have a strong opinion and like um, just like, I don't know, like some like some sort of like super strong stance on things and like you can just cut through everything and like here's how it is. But you're very like you're super controlled and like, well, it depends on the interpretation and stuff. And like I was wondering, is there was there any time where you were like more like, all right, it's this way and this is right? Or have you um, did you kind of develop over time? Like as you learn more, you know, there's like a lot more nuance. I don't know if that makes sense at all. It 100 percent makes sense. Um, I love the question. I gave, I, I always give an analogy. Uh, again, my MS just has been wreaking havoc on my memory. So I'm sorry if I've said this to anybody before. Um, but about the hallway, uh, so I'll give it real quick. I'm, I'll, be, I'll be fast, I promise. But I, I think it speaks to this directly in my life and probably in the lives of many other people. If you're standing in a hallway, like a 50 foot hallway, and there's a door at the other end of the hallway, and the door is open, um, and it's, it's like, you can see you're looking into a library or you're looking into a room with a bookshelf, at least on one end, but you, all you can see from 50 feet away is just line of sight, the width of the door. Right. Um, so not much. And you realize that look how far away I am. If you take five steps forward in a 50 foot hallway, it feels like you've covered a lot of ground. And so you, you feel like all the ground that you've covered, you should be able to see a lot more. You're a lot closer, right? So maybe you can see more details about that bookshelf, but you can still only see line of sight through the doorway. But it plays this trick on your mind because you've, you've taken so many steps forward. You've come so much closer to the thing that you're looking at you should know so much more about it now, so much more than the guy that's standing five steps back. But the reality is you don't, right? Um, at least about, about the contents of that room. Um, and it's not until you walk down the entirety of the hallway and step into the room and look around and you realize that you're standing inside of the Library of Congress like that was a hallway down to the Library of Congress. And there's just not that I've been in there. So I'm probably describing it ill. But like, yeah, I'm picturing like three stories of just books everywhere. Right. And you realize, oh, my gosh, even though I've come so far, I've covered so much ground. I now know comparatively so much less. And that's what had me 100 um, percent. Like what, when, as I went through like my bachelor's degree and even through my master's degree, like I was taking all these steps forward in the hallway 
Um, but it wasn't really until I got into my doctoral work that I stepped into the, into the room and looked around and went, oh my gosh, I don't know anything, <laughs> right? There's, there's so much here to master. And so that's when it sort of switched in my, because I used to say that sort of stuff very definitively. This is the way it is. Now, I mean, yeah, I'm very reticent to say something like that. Did that, did that make sense? Did that explain it? Definitely, yeah, I, I, I love that. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I, I love it too because I, I mean that's been my my experience talking with people. Um, usually, people and there's personalities that go along with it too, so it's not a catch-all. But you, you know, people who usually will um, be the least versed or least studied will have the the most uh, dogmatic opinions, and the people who are the most well versed and most studied will will be more measured because they know. Uh, like you, I mean, exactly like what you said, they know how much more there is to this. So, I mean, unless you say something that in their, in their eyes is just like 101 cannot be, um, you know, like if you talk about a, a biologist and you're talking about, you know, how God made people and stuff like that. And if you're not like directly trying to counter something that they, they believe is like the ABCs and they're like, oh, you you just think like you don't care about these other stuff. You just think there's a, a creator somewhere that uh, made some people and put this thing called a soul in them. That's what you're saying. And it's like yes, they're like I don't really have any thought on that. I don't I don't know. And they'll say something like I'm not convinced by any evidence I've seen. Um, but I mean you know if you try to tell them like the ABCs of what they think about evolution are wrong, they may they may call you out. But I mean that that's been my experience because you see how much more nuances it is, right? Like even the um. Even the Jewish Talmudic law, right? Like so many people will be really fiery to call out God for being like this moral monster. Um, but then people who have studied this and studied the law may be a little more reticent or hesitant because they're like, oh, well, look, I see how you can get there. But there is so much stuff. Like, have you read the Talmud? Um, it explains so many more options in the scenario than just God's evil. Um, so they're a little more tempered in their uh, tone. For example, I remember um, I was talking to uh, Dr. Richard Carrier. Um, I, I mean, he's, he's still, I, I haven't heard anything about him in a while, but I mean, he's, he's pretty fiery um, against God. But I mean, you know, we had a really pleasant discussion um, because it wasn't really on his playing field, right? Well, it was about the historicity of Jesus. But I'm like, well, well, look, there's a lot of evidence, like, you know, that I consider spiritual in nature. And he's like, well, what do I do with that? Like you're claiming something that science can't prove and whatever. I'm like, well, yeah, it's like, all right, well, okay. So, I mean, after we kind of got that out of the way, we had a really good lengthy conversation and it wasn't like, you know, I'm challenging, you know, like one of his historical texts or something. Um, I, I'm talking about a metaphysical God that I believe in. And I mean, what can you do with that? You just say, oh, well, science, uh, you know, can't measure it. Am I rambling? No, Sorry, not at guys. all. And I, and I think, I think one of the things that was really um, f freeing might not be the right word, but it seems like it works here to me, was recognizing uh, that that different interpretive frameworks are are good things, um, and and that was something that you know. Uh, of course, I, I grew up as a fundamentalist evangelical, so from, from that perspective, there's like 
from my perspective, it was there's one right way to come at the text, right? Um, and then when I deconverted, it was like none of that stuff mattered anymore. Um, but I think coming back to it, it particularly in these online circles and having, you know, having to engage, um, like there, there are real, I used to think, and this may rub people the wrong way, so I'm sorry, but like reader response theory, I think is actually a, a, a very, very valuable way to come at ancient texts. So if, 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 if people don't know what I mean by that, like the, the stereotypical, you go to a Sunday school class, for example, and you read a passage, you know, and, and you say, you know, the, the uh, facilitator of the group says, what does that verse mean to you? Now, as a fundamentalist, that would have been like an anathema question. It doesn't matter what it means to me, right? It just matters what it meant to the, the original authors. And in a specific context, that's absolutely true. But I think I think that's a very valuable way to come at the text because in, in the same way that, um, you know, we look at paintings uh, or we listen to music and it's sort of irrelevant what, um, you know, Go West meant by uh, King of Wishful Thinking in its original context. It just matters more what it means to me as I listen to it. I think in the same way, the Bible or any other ancient text uh, can can be very meaningful uh, to people, and 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 un, again and under and I'll land here. Sorry, under you know people's beliefs or interpretive frameworks or theologies, God can speak to them through how the text you know hits them, um, as opposed to uh, simply being restricted to what it meant uh, like in, in its original context. Anyway, well, I mean, I don't know if that well, I mean. Sense. No, it, it does make sense, but I, I mean, I, I don't really disagree with you, except except for one one little part, maybe. But I mean, you know, that that's how you know Christians consider you know the Bible like the living word of God. How no matter how many times you you can read passages of Scripture, you you can still kind of take slight new new meanings and extra little things and like dig deeper into them. Um, which you know, it, it's I mean, it's a pretty pretty um deep book, so you can keep reading it and keep getting new stuff that would say, well, what it means to me, or, you know, I'm diving deeper or some cliche like that. But I mean, also I think the thing where I would just set the table, right. Um, would be, well, what does it mean to you? Well, well, because you know, I, I, and you know, other Christians who have done their diligence and read the Bible and, you know, really studied just, just a little bit. I'm not like a Bible scholar. But, I mean, you know, just, just read the thing like a normal lay person and, you know, done like very, very minor or moderate, moderate, like research and things like that. Um, I think what it means to me is what it means to the original authors. Um, I, I think that's that's kind of the point is it, it is the same thing. And then, you know, there are certain things that I mean, like dual prophecies, for example, like, there, I mean, what it means to the author is multiple things. There can be dual prophecies. So, I mean, if I don't think that's bad or an anathema, if, if you know, you can get the author's original tent, be like, well, yeah, I understand what it means to me is what it meant to the author, because, well, we just we understand the context, we understand the hermeneutics, and that's that's just the answer. So um, but also. I, I can't think of an example off my head, um, <clears throat> but I, I don't know. I can't think off the off my head. But like, if if Jesus says something, and it's like, okay, well, what did that mean to Jesus? And it's like, it's like, blessed is someone that you know um, does good things. Um, but then you find out from reading the context that does a good thing was like, you know, um, maybe helping the the Samaritan person that was beat, or helping helping the guy that the Samaritan helped, the good Samaritan, um, helped the guy who was beat up on the side of the road. 
But then I'm like, oh, what that meant to me was just generally do good things like, you know, work at a soup kitchen. So, I mean, I don't think that's bad, but I mean, clearly the author's intent in the parable was, was specific to Good Samaritan story. Um, but just because I got an, a deeper extra meaning about that, um, yeah, that's fine. But I mean, I, I think if you do your diligence, you're, you're going to come to the same uh, conclusion as the author's intent. There's a good that I, I give in this context. I, sorry. I think it's good. That sounded really self-aggrandizing. I give a great example. Um, <laughs> but when I was, you know, I grew up a, I grew up a, a Christian, so I we went to Christian camps quite a bit. And at most of the Christian camps that I went to, there was always like a little gift shop. And at the end uh, of camp, you know, you, you formed all these tremendous lifelong bonds with people for that four days. Um, and so like, you know, campers would be, uh, I'm going to miss you. I'm never going to see you again. And they would end up inevitably going to this gift store and buying the, these little dual necklace sets. And it, the, the pendant would be a broken stone, like, you know, like a broken heart, but a broken stone. And when you put the pieces together, it would say, may God watch over uh, me and you while we are apart. And it, it's a quote from Genesis, right? And, oh, my gosh, like, this is so great. God's going to watch over you and he's going to watch over me while we're apart until we come back again next year. It was like, it's really, really meaningful, right? Well, when you, when you go back and read the context, it's a curse, right? It's, you know, uh, Laban saying to, to Jacob, may this mitzvah stone, you know, be a witness and, and may God watch over you, Jacob, on your side. In other words, so that you don't come across this stone and try to harm me. You know, may God you know, watch over you, like guard against you coming over here to hurt me. So it's like the complete opposite context. But I, I, before I would have I would have laughed at them, you know, and said like, well, you know, what a bunch of rubes. But the reality, I think, is that that text can speak to somebody in a way that is meaningful. And that's a that's an OK like interpretive framework. That's, that's, that's kind of what I mean by it. Yeah, I hear you. And someone also mentioned, um, like a, a dual prophecy in scripture, just that, I mean, that wasn't my main point, but just for an example, um, uh, like, uh, like the coming of Jesus, like Isaiah seven, it talks about how, uh, you know, a woman's gonna basically the story of Mary, but a young woman's going to give a sign and it, it serves as a sign, not the immaculate conception, but it's going to be a sign to like King Ahaz. Ahaz, Ahaz, whatever, during uh, during a certain time, and that would be the immediate fulfillment, but then the ultimate fulfillment is in the Gospel of Matthew when it is Jesus and the birth of Christ. So that, that would be like a quick example of what I mean by dual prophecy. But then if someone also read that and it made them, you know, have a complete different thought that was kind of on the lines of what you were saying, well, well fine. I mean, you know, if, if you can read something and get 10 different meanings out of it and they're all beneficial, then good. But I mean, ultimately, one meaning, one meaning, which we should all ultimately align on, is the author's intent because i mean that, that's the point of it right so if you it, it would be difficult if, if you're just reading a book uh to not get the author's intent uh, unless you're I, I guess bad at hermeneutics or you just don't read the whole context or something but um yeah uh random guess todd anyone else Oh, I guess I had the hour. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get some other people in here. I had another topic, but yeah, I kind of want to drink some coffee first. <laughs> All right. I, 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 got a, a I got a quick question there, Nate. Yeah. 
So I was having a conversation in the chat, and I just needed somebody else to verify. Am I a Christian or am I an atheist? Who is asking? Random? Uh, Random is asking, yeah. As far as I know you, you're an atheist, but, um, you know, yeah, I, I would like... They didn't believe I would, me is what I was saying, so I just wanted to verify. Like, I, I just wanted more information. Like, are, are they saying, like, you, you, you used to be a Christian, therefore you're still a Christian, no matter how, how far you run? Or they're like... No, I just thought I heard you talk about Jesus and how he is your Lord and Savior. But no, you've got the wrong guy. I'm telling you, that wasn't me. No, I was just critiquing their argumentation, and they thought that I was a Christian. And I said, no, I'm an atheist. And they're like, oh. yeah, right. So I just, I just wanted somebody else to verify it. For right now, anyways. Ha, ha, ha. Nate, I had a question. So you, um, you were mentioning earlier how you think that what you have now, like your interpretation is closely aligned with the, um, the author's intent. Is that, is that right? Uh, yes. I mean, that's the goal. For sure. Yeah, that's the goal. Um, and then before that, you mentioned how, like, um, a lot of people think homosexuality is good, but, um, you think it's not so good. Um, but I was wondering, have you looked into like how, how the um, like ancient Near East authors and like the people of that time actually viewed like same sex relationships and how different it is to what we view it today. Um, if you're going, I think like a week or so ago, uh, Dr. Josh uh, and, and us talked about that. Um, exactly. Um, so if you're, if you're making the argument that like, you know, someone tried to play it more heavy in the new, in the new Testament, um, really condemning specifically same-sex fornication um, versus in the um, in in some of the law where it talks about like uncovering nakedness. It wasn't de uh, necessarily referring to that. Um, I'd say, I mean, we talked about it, but uh, no, I am I am convinced that it has always been um, viewed pretty much the same. I mean, again, you could talk about cultures like Sodom and Gomorrah. Obviously, had a pretty high view of it. I mean. But that doesn't make it right. So, I mean, you know, through, throughout time, there have been people who had favorable and unfavorable views of it. Nothing doing. Gotcha. And yeah, this is definitely not my field of expertise. Hopefully I'm, I'm not straw manning it. But it seems like um, from what I've read, <laughs> might as well just have Josh run this. But um, like, <laughs> like how in the Middle East, the ancient Near East, they're, they accepted, um, like they didn't have the word, of course, like homophobe, like uh I don't know, like, they, they didn't have the same conception we had. So, like, apparently, um, these relationships were pretty much accepted, and it was more of, like, a dominance um, sort of thing rather than, like, a, a, like, romantic relationship or whatever. And so it was viewed, like, that sort of thing was viewed as accepted, like, a, a master and the boy relationship um, in the nearest was accepted there. And so, like, they would, assuming, I, I think they would be just, like, when they say, like, a man should not lie with another man or whatever. They have like a totally different conception of like same sex relationships. I might be kind of butchering that there, but um, I don't know if that makes sense. Um, well, for the, I mean, for the Christian view or even the Judaic view, I mean, um, there, there's no way around it. Like even in the, the, um, you know, Israelite laws, one of the six or 13 bullets, bullet points. Um, so even in the law, all through the new Testament. So if we're talking about people who are adhering to um, the God of the Bible, then that view, um, no matter how you slice it, was always no wrong, don't do that, do not do that. Um, if we're talking about any other culture, then yeah, like I could believe that about 
I don't know, maybe like Roman gladiators or, you know, prison today. It's not about love. It's about dominance. I'm like, ew. Um, so, I mean, I can, I can get that argument um, for certain people or certain cultures. But as far as it pertains to anyone in the Bible who's trying to adhere to the God of the Bible, um, no, I, I would not buy that. Um, gotcha. Yeah, that's uh, something I'll look into a little bit more. But yeah, so do, you don't think? Um, do you think that as the Bible is being constructed, um, the Jewish people of the time thought that uh, same-sex relations were bad? Uh, yeah. Okay, fair enough. Give me a second. Let me just see if I can like track down a couple of the laws real fast. And I sent Courtney an invite. She was weighing in on chat. If you want to talk or say anything, Courtney, feel free to jump up. I would just like to encourage Courtney to read the Old Testament. Apparently, that's uh, something she doesn't do. So, <laughs> sorry. Somebody yesterday in a room said something like, "Have you ever read the Old Testament?" Which is just really funny to hear somebody ask for that. Well, my internet doesn't want to work yet. I'm on Clubhouse. Maybe it's the app. Yes, I mean, you know, just looking at like, uh, let's see, in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 22, um, I mean, it seems pretty hard to get away from. Um, I mean, I could say go back and check the Hebrew, but you really don't need to. Um, but um, you shall not lie with a man as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Um, a little more flavor in Leviticus 20, 13. Um, if there's a man who lies with a man as those lie with a female, both of them. So not just a top or bottom, hate to be graphic, but in chat that was mentioned, <laughs> um, both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guilt is upon them. Um, so you, you could even say, um, God says don't do this. So if they do that, that, that goes back to the other thing about the slaves and stuff like that. Um, is it morality or is it you've done some, you've disobeyed. So that, that is the morality, like because you've disobeyed. Um, but it says their blood guilt is upon them. So, I mean, the way this is perceived is they've done something and they've brought this upon themselves, which surely it's not like they're hearing it for the first time. But I, there, there's just no way around um, saying that it was a, a dominant thing or it was a different understanding. And I know people would try to say that for like the New Testament and say it's more heavy handed than the New Testament. Um, but I mean, that, that's pretty clear in the Old Testament. Yeah, I realize um, in the in the Old Testament it does say that. But have you heard of like something like uh, pederasty? Uh, doesn't sound familiar. Sure, it was like it was like an ancient um, 
an ancient it was kind of like it was in it was in greece and stuff uh ancient uh people it was like the the relationship between like a, a master and a boy or something where they have like same sex re like relations but it's not like seen as like a romantic relationship necessarily but stuff like that i believe was pretty much accepted for a long time back then but yeah i was just i, I didn't have a whole big point on that but just seeing if you <clears throat> looked into that oh well yeah i mean i know that in, in non god caring about cultures yeah i mean 100 percent. i mean you know like first few pages of well genesis i mean you know you've got sodom and gomorrah um in greece and like you know in rome with like what the the domina or dominus and glad gladiators um but regardless um you know the the bible doesn't make an allowance for intent or power dynamics um says hey if you do this both of you um in trouble Is is this the topic we're going to end on? <laughs> yeah, we could we could finish that topic. I just I didn't have much more to say. I thought I thought maybe I did, but I don't. <laughs> well, hey Brian, let's see if uh, Brian wants to say anything on the topic. Brian, did you just get here? Do you know what the topic is? <laughs> I actually have people coming over in just a little bit, so I have to meet them at the door and then tell them to stay away because I'm sick and I don't want to cough on them. You got 10 minutes. I got a, I got one more thing and then I'm going to go do some other stuff. All right, let's do it. All right. So I wanted to, um, uh, I think it's it, interesting. This is like a totally different topic. Like the idea of God, um, delighting in the destruction of people. And so just the first question I had is, um, do you think people, do you think we should delight in suffering for punishment or do you think we should have like the minimum effective justice for the situation where like um it's not it's not good that we have to like destroy people and stuff um but what is good is like the minimum um sufficient justice for the situation like do you think do you think we should delight in people's destruction or do you think we should do the minimum effective justice for the scenario um <clears throat> depending on the verse you're talking about um because I can think of a few, so you know, context is king. But um, I, I mean, I tend to agree with you on my on my own personal thing. Like you know, the Bible talks about how, uh, what is it? Something like when the wicked perish, people rejoice, and things like that. So, um, context, right? So we don't have time to get the context of everything, but that's just the first thing I'm thinking of. So, what does that mean? Does that mean like you know, in Libya, where you know, Gaddafi years ago, how he fell from power? Um, he got drug out in the street and like cut to death and stabbed in all unsavory manner places with knives and swords. Um, and people were having a mob riot and like tearing the guy limb from limb. Does that mean we should like celebrate with cake and champagne over that? Um, that's, a, that's a little rough. Like, I mean, you know, I, I think people can be happy for their, for, well, uh, happy that he's gone and out of power and that the wicked fell. Um, but do we have to be happy with like being ripped limb from limb and like, you know, drugged through the street? I wouldn't be happy about that necessarily because, um, you know, that's just a little, yeah, that, that's a little too much. Um, so, so I would ask what the context is. So, uh, you know, in the, uh, let me see. I was looking for the context of the one where God says it. Um, for the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are kept safe, uh, but the descendants of the wicked will be um, erased. Eh. Yeah, I, I, I'm not finding anything like what you're talking about. So if you have a specific Bible verse, 
But um, I, I mean, I think I, I can think of some things, but I don't know where they are right now. But about you know, God laughs when the wicked um, fall or, or stuff like that. So what's the what's the context? Like when there's someone who's um, so puffed up with pride uh, that they they fall and are their kingdom is overran or whatever, and they're like knocked down a peg. Um, or does that mean God, you know, rejoices when these people are actually um, pulled limb from limb and they die and they spend eternity in hell being tortured day and night? Does God rejoice? Is he happy about that? Um, so I want to know the context, but I, I don't believe there's anything I can think of where God is happy um, when people like ultimately meet their demise in hell. Because the Bible tells us things like he, he's not slow in keeping his promise, um, but he's patient, wanting everyone to come to repentance. And, you know, God so loved the world to give his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. So so it seems like the deck is stacked against God being thrilled uh, when people burn in hell forever. Um, but if God, uh, you know, like, I think it says something like he mocks the proud um, and, uh, you know, gives grace to the humble and opposes the proud, uh, things like that. So like in this natural earthly realm, when, um, you know, evil and bad people are knocked down a peg and like knocked out of power or think they're going to have some great plan to scam people or scheme and it goes awry and maybe they get caught, they get thrown in jail, something like that. Um, I mean, we rejoice in that. Why couldn't God? Sure. Um, well, so it's, I guess it's the overall character of God. So there are, um, this is part of the problem I see is that there are, yeah, there, there's verses in both sides, but I just want to kind of make the case that, um, so if we have like a a, perf, a person that's like a perfect justice, it seems like and like they're all powerful. They created the world. It seems like when they when they punish people, they're going to do something like, well, like I have to do this. I'm not like glad that I want to do this, but this is the justice. This is like the minimal effect of justice. Um, but we see many verses where God is just delighting in the destruction. He has zeal over destruction of people. And so I can give some verses for this. So like. Deuteronomy 28, 63, it pleases God to ruin and destroy. Psalm 58, 10, the righteous will be glad when they dip their feet in the blood of the wicked. Um, Ezekiel 5, 3, my anger shall spend itself. I will vent my fury upon them and satisfy my zeal. So these would be things that they're not indicating that God is like, oh, well, I just have to do the minimum effect of justice. It seems like they suggest that God is literally like taking pleasure in destroying I will vent my fury, my zeal. So this is him um, with very like human-like emotions. Um, it doesn't seem like somebody of perfect justice is like venting their fury and taking zeal in destroying people and dipping dipping the blood of their enemies. So it seems like this is not indeed an act of minimal justice. This is like God actually taking pleasure and delighting in destruction. And so, uh, yeah, that's, that's the case I make. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, a couple of things. I don't know the context, um, you know, the other things, but I'm, I'm going to go on a limb and say for Psalms, um, you know, keep, you know, I would just say pay special attention to the context, which we don't have time for right now. But in Psalms, you know, there's other things people quote. I, I think that may be around the part where it talks about, you know, how it's going to be great when we bash babies' heads against rocks. And people will use that and say, look, look how evil this is. But it's a song of lamentations, not because they are going to do that to people but because that was done to them by godless people warring against them. Um, so keep in mind when you're reading Psalms, like, is this from what you read? I'm just taking your word at it. Um, but did it say like God wants this or God is pleased with this? Or is this like people basically writing like how happy they're going to be in a lamentation sense, like when they finally get their vengeance and their justice and it's people saying this, not necessarily God. 
Um, but then for the other uh, the other things, um, the the generous since I don't know the context uh, right now, um, the generous and not so generous view would be um, what like whoever said it has to be minimal justice, and are we? It's not like we're anthropomorphizing God. Um, we believe we're creating the image of God. So God has these emotions first. Um, so because we have these emotions, because we're creating the image of God, uh, you know, anger, sadness, happiness, things like that. Um, so we have emotions because we're creating the image of God. And he has these emotions. So I don't think it's like we're humanizing God. Um, we are human because God imparted that into us. Um, I think I forgot the second point. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, I would just say ultimately consider the context. And if you want to like forward me those verses or whatever, I'd be happy to like check it out later. Definitely. Maybe we could do a deep dive in this later. I tried to pick. Oh, I tried to pick. Verses. I remembered. I, I, I remembered. Um, a more apologetic sounding verse, but hey, if it's or, or uh, approach, but hey, if it's true, it's true. Um, so keep in mind, ultimately, um, a binary choice, right? You're Team Jesus or Team Demon. So if you're not. Uh, if you're not on the side of God, by default, there is no other option. You're on Team Satan, uh, who opposes God, opposes his children, opposes Christians, um, basically hates humanity. So even if you say, that's not me, well, that's the team you're on from the, the Christian worldview. Um, so it's bad enough if you just say, well, you know, I'm not religious, I'm not a Christian, I don't believe in God, but Christians are fine, they're, they're okay people, like we can hang out and stuff like that. I mean, that's bad enough because you're still defaulted to Team Satan. But imagine the people who actually were trying to war and kill, um, you know, the children of God. Um, so they are people who are like, hey, we hate your God and we hate you. You're going to die. Um, and then they actively go make war. So then if God takes a little pleasure in, in uh, getting, you know, destroying them, well, um, yes, that's how it is. Um so, so I don't know what else to say. I mean, if that's the way it is, that's the way it is. Like, I, I guess people don't have to like it, but I can understand it more if it's like, oh, so you're not just taking pleasure in destroying these good meaning people who just didn't have, weren't raised in the right type of religious household. It's like, no, you're people who are on, uh, you know, who are actively trying to murder and torture and kill my children. Um, yeah, I'm going to be happy when you die. For example, I don't know. Sure. Fair enough. So I tried to pick, um, I tried to pick verses specifically that it's God talking to his people. So not like, yeah, a prophet, um, kind of like being the mouthpiece or something. So yeah, we could do a deep dive later. Obviously we don't got time now. I'll finish up with this last verse here and we, um, can kind of finish on that because I know you got to go. Um, so this is one I'm sure, you know, Exodus 34 and yeah, maybe, so maybe we don't agree on the intuitions of like, to me, it seems like the perfect person, who is all powerful. He made everybody. He made the world. He did all this. He's not going to rejoice in the suffering of his creation. He's going to enact the minimal justice. He's not going to be like zealous over these things. So that's, that's my intuition. Maybe we disagree there, but we could talk about that a different day. I'll give you one final verse here. Exodus 34, six through seven. I'm sure you've heard. This is one that's often quoted, but they forget the latter half, the context. So God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And this is the part Christians cut off here. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the father on the children's children? So um, God's mercy here is conditional. It's not for everyone. He is punishing children's children because of the father, which is inherently an 
an act of injustice. You're punishing somebody else for something they did not do. So this is, an, again, another example of where um, God is, you know, taking um, taking unjust means. Uh, it's not like minimal justice. He's just punishing the children's children of the father. And so to me, it seems like that's also an act of injustice. Uh, but yeah, I'll let you respond there and we can kind of finish it up. Uh, yeah, just a clarifying thing. Doesn't it say to those who hate him? Is that the first word it says that? Or maybe I'm thinking something else. It may. So these are these. Yeah, I did not put the whole verse word by word, but I tried to give a very accurate summary. But yeah, we could again, we could deep dive later into that. But yeah, I could I could probably assume that. Yeah, if they hate God, but it, it still doesn't seem like you should punish the children's oh. the father, like the children's children for the father's hate, you know? Yeah. And, and there's th this is where, you know, the totality of scripture is really useful. Um, so, so there are also there's um, oh gosh I, I wish I I wish we had time to get into this because uh, I, I don't remember it off the top of my head I, I remember the points I want to make but I don't remember how to um, I, I don't remember the citations I want to give uh, from the Bible it's all Bible citations but um, I mean you can probably Google it real fast but there are there's that verse right and I, I forget the the specific context but that could be things like you know what does that mean like you're going to be um, curse for destruction, or does it mean something else? Like I, I still bring that verse up quite a bit when we talk about like, mental health issues and addiction and things like that. I'm like, well, could there be something to this? Because it's just like at a at a DNA level, how could could some sort of like curse or mean um, for like secular speak like predisposition? So it's not something you can't break. It's not something you can't get away from. But if you have a family of alcoholics, um, we know how that can get into DNA and give people, um, you know, their offspring a propensity for being a, a predisposition to being an alcoholic. So they may have an extra hard time if they start drinking alcohol and struggle with uh, addiction and alcoholism. So could that mean like this is down the third and fourth generations? Because it's it's not so much God doing this. Um, I, I mean, it could, I mean, it, let's just say God did it. That's what the text says. Um, but it's also a making of their, like a creation of their own. Because if they do these things and it like corrupts their DNA to such a level that this is the price for their iniquities, um, we would, I mean, in clinicians would call that, you know, a, a dish, um, you know, like addictions or, or whatever word they would use. But spiritually, I don't think it's too far off. But then one more point. Um, there's also another verse, another passage of scriptures, and I, I don't remember the context right now. But it talks about how God will not always hold, um, you know, this against people and things will not be visited down um, to the generations. But basically everyone's responsible for their own stuff. Um so just to point out that that is in there, the, the opposite of that is in there, uh, but I'm not, I don't immediately re recall the context of it. So I think that's good when, you know, to know the totality of scripture, um, to remember that things like that are in there and what does it really mean? Um, that's a good question. I like the, uh, I like the topic. Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, because I know you got to go. I could, yeah, we could, I could respond to that and I got more verses and stuff, but yeah, I think it's, um, I think. I'm not sure if pointing out verses where God says something different or contrad contradictory is, is something in your favor, because to me, it just seems like, well, okay, it's inconsistent then. If, if there's one verse over here that says God is loving, and then there's a verse over here that says God is like destroying people and taking zeal. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, yeah. Well, of course, you know, I'm not going to say it's contradictory. It's going to be like understanding the passages and what that means. So Again, I don't know the context. But for example, does that mean like, you know, people who hate God and are aligned with the devil and visiting evil upon God's children, he's going to visit that down upon him, uh, you know, generations. And does that mean like the context of the other one is talking about the Israelites, how they're not going to be held accountable for like, if you're someone who, who loves God 
um, you, you know, and someone else makes a mistake, you're not going to visit that upon them. So, I mean, of course, it's not contradictory. I think over thousands of years, people would have figured that out um, and either admitted it or tried to cover it up and remove it, uh, but they didn't. So, I mean, I, I know the context is, is just fine. I just don't immediately recall it, but it's, I, I believe it's something like that. Like basically um, generations of people who are going to hate and fight and war against God, um, they're going to have problems. Uh, generations of people who are going to be following God and accountable for their own actions, um, if they make a mistake, it's not going to be held ag against them. So I'm not completely accurate, but I'm, I'm like hovering around the right context. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, we can pick this up. Fair enough. <clears throat> cool. Yeah, Another day, cool my to, voice is about to go. <laughs> yeah, no problem. I'll let you go. It'd be cool to, yeah, we'll deep dive into some verses later on. Maybe I'll, we'll have, uh, yeah, sometime where I can have my computer up and we can scroll through the verses. Because right? on, on Clubhouse, you can't uh, tab out without your voice cutting out. So yeah, it was uh, good talking to you, Nate. All right, man. Good to see you and catch all you other people later. Have a good one. See ya.